Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 18 after our short summer hiatus. Apologies that we left you without all of your latest marketing and AI information that you need, but we are going to make up for it this week because we have a banger of two to three weeks of everything you need to know that happened in the world of marketing and AI. I'm here as usual with my very good friend, Martin Broadhurst. How are you, Martin? I'm good. I'm fully relaxed, although I'm a little bit throaty, a bit of a, I don't know if it's laryngitis. I don't know if you can hear that there, but uh, maybe, maybe partied too hard on my friend's wedding this weekend. Let's hope you recover quickly because you've got a busy couple of weeks ahead of you, haven't you? I have. Yeah. Tomorrow morning, I fly out to Cleveland for the Marketing AI Institute's conference, MACON out in Cleveland, Ohio. Really looking forward to that. They've got some genuinely top draw speakers and I'm also speaking. Um, so that's nice. I didn't click. I would have just said there's some top draw speakers, but I appreciate the uh, the humbleness there, Martin. So if you're going to be at that event, go and say hello to Martin, because I'm sure he'd love to say hello to you. He'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. And if you are lucky enough to be going to that event, it does look like an absolute stellar lineup. So Martin, I'm sure you'll come back and give us your top takeaways from the event when you return. Yeah, very much so. And hoping to get a few interviews with the with delegates and speakers while I'm out there. So a bit of content for the pod. Me likey. Right. Let's um there's a lot to get through. So we're going to jump through. Now, usually we have a number of big stories that we look into and a bunch of short snippets, but there has been so much that's happened, dear listener, that we're just going to crack through at speed. We're going to try and take you through all the different things that have happened. And um, I'm sure Martin and I will jump into some conversation around some of the aspects where appropriate. Uh, And there won't even be time for tool of the week this week. I suspect there'll be some tools of the week hidden in all of the updates because there's so much good stuff. Okay, deep breath. Everybody get ready to drink from the fire hose. I'll get ready to turn it on. Let's start with a load of announcements this week from OpenAI, especially announcements around ChatGPT. So the first thing is a couple of weeks ago, according to the team at SimilarWeb, which is a platform that does its best to try and assess how much traffic different websites are getting, even though, of course, they don't have access to their actual data. But according to SimilarWeb, it looked like ChatGPT's user growth may have stalled because the data suggested that it had the platform had fewer users in June than in May. So that's quite an interesting one to kick us off with. Has the hype cycle of everybody wanting to have a play with chat GPT, is it burning itself out? Yeah, I think we've probably saturated the early user growth. Now we're kind of heading into that. Okay, we've got the routine users, the people that have played with the free version and weren't blown away with it. They've now gone by the wayside. Um, But you can actually see this reflected in Google Trends as well. Um, If you look at Google Trends um, for chat gpt it has plateaued so it's not just similar web that we can uh, look to for this it seems to be confirmed by multiple points yeah and it's i've been trying to reflect on this during our little summer hiatus and i think this definitely anecdotally from people i've spoken with people who've had a bit of a play thought oh this is cool 
but struggle to really apply it in their work. So I think adoption of AI is going to have to overcome a fairly major hump there when this is rolled out to the wider masses through Google Workspace and Microsoft 365 Copilot and these other tools. The other thing I was really thinking about is I had a conversation online um, with a couple of folks about Code Interpreter, which we'll talk about a bit later, and some of the analyses of Code Interpreter being wrong. And sometimes when you get outputs from ChatGPT, some of the stuff is made up. And it really made me think, how commercially viable are these tools if you can't trust them? Because it means you've got to check everything. Now, I'm sure they're still able to save us time, even when you've got to do lots of checking, because at least you don't have to perhaps create the raw output yourself. But that does limit, I think, the impact that they can have and also how much quite a big chunk of the working populace is going to be willing to trust them with, right? Because they'll be worried that they're going to report back to their boss or other key figures in the business and outside of the business stuff that's wrong. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to actually see how that plays out. Yeah. I mean, imagine that you're a lawyer, for instance, going into a court case and citing examples from uh, from case law and none of them existing. Could imagine you imagine? Being, <laughs> what, a, what a ridiculous human being you'd have to be to do that. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. I think people are going to have to have trust in the systems. And actually that comes through exposure. When, the more you use the tools, you more the more you recognize where their strengths and weaknesses lie and how much you have to check and double check certain elements that it gives you. So I understand why people might be reticent to use them, particularly if they've only used you know, the free version of ChatGPT with GPT 3.5. But once you start to see where it excels and how it can save you certain amounts of time on very specific tasks, like a, you probably have a set list of tasks that you know ChatGPT will do quicker than you doing it on your own. Um, as soon as you've done that, then you start to introduce it in your day-to-day. I think you're right. And I think as the tools get better, you can expand that list or start to introduce tasks where previously you decided it wasn't quite good enough yet. Yeah, I think we're going to see that as well. And for those of you um, who are new to the show, the reference to the lawyer who used AI to drive uh, to drive a court case he was involved in is episode 13. Go back, check it out, see what we're talking about. This is kind of crazy. Um, moving swiftly on with the stories here then. Um OpenAI has also provided all API users, all is in the quotation marks at the moment, with access to GPT-4. So this is a pretty big deal for those of you that are out there are moving beyond just playing with ChatGPT and trying to see if there are ways you can smart automate aspects of your work using tools like Zapier. And until now, most of us, including me still, which is annoying, had to rely on um gpt model 3.5 which is pretty good for lots of different stuff but it doesn't have the content creation capabilities of gpt4 so for example martin and i and martin spoken about an example that he did in a, in a live event which i can't even remember what episode that was but you should definitely go back and listen to that one um, and i've built myself an app where i can record voice notes on my phone and then the audio gets pushed into uh, Whisper, which is a transcription tool, and then the transcription gets pushed into ChatGPT 
to be summarized and drafted into an email that I can send to someone, but they all rely on GPT 3.5. And so the quality is a bit meh, but if you can get access to GPT 4, it's going to seriously upgrade what you can do building those self automations. But so, so I think that's very cool. If you're in that niche power group, um, obviously we're going to see even more tools improve a lot. If everybody can access GPT 4 via the API, have you got access yet, Martin? I have yet. And I've uh, made some upgrades to some of the workflows that I had in Zapier, uh, Zapier. Uh, yeah, that's it. I've seen some improvements. The prompts that I had anyway gave me pretty good outputs with 3.5, so I haven't seen any dramatic changes uh, except the cost. I mean, I'm using it at a very low level, but the price difference between 3.5 and 4 is, uh, yeah, it's noticeable. Interesting. So you may not be getting that much better results, but you are paying more. Mm. It's yeah. going to be, it's definitely going to be used case by use case, isn't it? Without a doubt. And that's the thing I think people need to recognize is there's a clamor to get access to something like GPT-4. Uh, but actually for lots of use cases, particularly with good prompting and few shot and many shot prompting as well, uh, you can get really good results with 3.5. There we are. Marketers playing with Zapier and other tools, bit of advice there on how to perhaps get the best bang for buck by choosing the right model for the right application. Um, some more ChatGPT news. Um, many of you would have noticed this actually by now, but um, ChatGPT has seen its internet access revoked as users were reportedly using it to get around paywalls and access gated content on top news sites. Um, and as of today, internet access for ChatGPT has yet to be reinstated. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> um, it was a use case that people found really early on as well. So I was surprised it took them so long to to pull it. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that publishers were up in arms about that. No doubt we'll see it reinstated fairly soon. In the meantime, you can always use the plugin WebPilot if you want to browse the web. It doesn't have quite the same... Um, capability is the Bing one, but for most users, they probably won't notice the differences. So yeah, if you do want to use ChatGPT connected to the web, just use the plugin uh, WebPilot. That's a good bit of advice. You can also use Bing. Um, and if you're feeling particularly brave, you can use Bard, but we'll talk about the, uh, there's been some improvements to Bard, but Bard is still very much lagging behind ChatGPT in a lot of, uh, lot of applications these days. Um, Right. Next is from OpenAI that they've announced that they've tasked a team internally with the goal of building a human level automated alignment researcher, which can be used to scale efforts and help align superintelligence. So on the one hand, this appears to be a proactive step to sort of help quell those fears around powerful AI tools coming out over the next few months and years that become less and less aligned with human values. But one assumes it will also help OpenAI to align their models without having to rely so much on learning with uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback, which obviously takes a lot of people and a lot of time. So there's a commercial benefit to creating this, a uh, fairly massive one, one would have thought. But most of the story from OpenAI has been about spinning. Uh, they're on a voyage to make sure that um, AGI remains aligned with what humans want, not just what it wants. So I thought it was quite an interesting story from that perspective. It's a great marketing tool, isn't it? Um, for the company as well, when you when you say, look, 
we're investing so much into um, keeping our incredibly powerful artificial intelligence system aligned to humans because our system, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly capable and can do all of these amazing things, uh, we have to invest heavily to keep it safe. By the way, did we mention that our system is incredibly powerful? <laughs> like it's a great marketing tool when you when you build this kind of uh, this expectation and make people believe that you've got this product which is uh, you know capable of so so much, potentially so dangerous, potentially being the key word. It's got some wonderful marketing one hundred and one in it, hasn't it? Mm. Choose the one, two, or three key features and benefits that you're going to promote. And repeat yourself a lot until it's embedded in people's in people's um, brains. Um, so yeah, so that was a cool one. Not as cool as our next bit of news, which is that OpenAI made Code Interpreter available for everyone. So this was in a closed alpha, I think, and now you can access it via beta. But it's kind of awesome. In fact, it's so powerful. There's been a theory going around that in essence you could consider Code Interpreter as GPT. 4.5 because i think what a lot of people know it for is its abilities with data analysis so we should probably touch on those first martin so within just a chat with code interpreter plugin enabled in chat gpt you can do data analysis data visualization predictive modeling you can clean your data up you can even create synthetic data so they're all quite well-known use cases and i've had a bit of a play with those we can look at those in a minute but because it can produce its own Python code, you can also get it to do other interesting things for you, like manipulating audio files, creating PDFs, creating uh, CSV files. So basically, you could give it some messy data and then ask it to clean it up and send it back to you and you download the, the CSV file. Um, some people have even used it to create interactive dashboards and interactive maps which is really awesome. Obviously not in the chat window itself because it can't run the code that it produces, but you don't need to be a Python coder to be able to use the code, right? You just need to ask what you want and then it gives it back to you. Um, so it's pretty amazing. There was one example where it looked like it could uncover and detect the number of faces in an image. So it's like, what is the limits of Code Interpreter? Because if you thought it was just going to be something to chuck some data in and make some nice graphs or ask some questions of your data, it can clearly do a lot more than that. Is it the 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 early preview to the multimodality capabilities of of GPT four that were that we saw previously? You you mentioned something there about the the data cleansing and being able to to throw files in and it will export some. Have you tried it? Not for cleansing, have you? Yeah, so it was it was the first use case that I, I put together. Um, and I created some kind of dummy data using an export of uh, a HubSpot contact sheet. So I just, you know, randomly capitalized and lowercased some names and put some missing data in fields like country and city and things like that. Made the Made the inconsistent telephone numbers, you know, that kind of thing. I just made it a little bit untidy. And I, it was only about 30 records in this, in this sample document. And could I get Code Interpreter to, to fix it and give me the output? No, I could not. It was a CSV file. I stuck it in there, asked it to do it. It went through lots of um, creating Python, and, but it never got me the output that I wanted. Um, maybe this is 
bad prompting from my part. So then I thought, well, okay, how easy is it to just get it to do it in GPT-4, just copying and pasting the CSV? The data in, yeah. Yeah, the data in. Did that with my instructions in the prompt, got the output first time. Interesting. <laughs> oh. But this harks back to the very first point in today's podcast, right? Which is like figuring out the horses for courses, like what's the right use case for each, each tool, but crumbs us a lot of effort to go through and try and figure out how to get it to make it work and then when to give up. And yeah, I, I, I'm I'm on board. My main use case so far was I, um, I tried to think about what data sources I had with like a ton of data. Like I really wanted to like try and break it. So I exported a month's worth of time entry data from across the agency and um, I removed any um, client specific stuff. So it was literally just people and time and date of timestamp. And I got it to make some really nice graphs for me. I, I wanted it to describe the data because I'd seen some examples online where you give it some data and then you say, what do you think are the 10 most interesting trends from this data? I, I got it to graph things like who'd done the most billable time. I then asked it in a text prompt, who's done the most billable time? And even though it previously just produced a graph for me that showed that person A had, it swore blind that someone completely different had done the most time. And I was like, are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure it's this person. And then the code interpreter went, oh, no, yeah, you are right. And I was like, who's the second most? And it gave me the person it had given me before who wasn't even in the top five. And I, and, I, and I, so I got into not a debate, but like an interesting conversation online about this where other people weren't having these problems. But when I've like tried three things and two of them are wrong, that's not the type of success rate where I feel like I can trust anything that comes out. Not even close. So who's this for? Because you know what? I'll chuck it in a pivot table, thanks, because I know the pivot table is going to be right. And I appreciate not everybody knows how to create pivot tables or... Um, often people are not working in them enough to remember their functionality or to really um, feel comfortable using them, but at least the information's correct. If I have to do a pivot table and a code interpreter analysis and double check them against each other, I'll skip the code interpreter, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. The more I think about this, the more I'm like... <laughs> There's going to be a bunch of use cases that I'm just not going to touch until there's some mechanisms in place to ensure quality of output and accuracy. Right. And I think that will, you know, we've talked about it a lot on the pod about UI UX is, is so important and you've, you've got to get that right. And what you want is a system where you've removed the need for prompting right? because prompting is half of the, the issue here. You put in one prompt, it doesn't quite work. So you're tweaking it. You're constantly going back and forth. You just want to be able to stick your data in and get, get something interesting out. And this is where Copilot and the whatever the Google AI version for Workspace is called, that, that's the nut that they're going to have to crack, isn't it? You, you hope that they can do this at the front end and it's not going to leave users having to go back and forth, constantly prompting and reprompting in order to get something functional out of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely an issue, but I'm also thinking... If I ask ChatGPT to create some content and it makes up scientific citations or whatever that sound plausible because of how its algorithms produce content based on its training data, I can sort of understand that. But when I give it some data, it shows me a graph output that clearly summarizes the data with a clear 
sort of outcome to the answer of the question. And the question was not ambiguous and it still gets it wrong. That's a worry for me because that's the biggest indicator yet. And I know that this is true, and but it's hard when you're working with ChatGPT and you see it output and you think, God, it knows stuff. But that was the biggest indicator to me yet that it knows nothing. Yeah. yeah. It's just somehow regurgitating information based on other information. I'm surprised Code Interpreter works as well as it does, to be honest. But until it until I can really trust it, but I'm not sure I can make it part of my workflow. Not to mention the fact I had to anonymize a load of the data because they couldn't risk putting any client-specific info in. So I can't ask anything like, oh, what's the profitability of this client versus this client or this project? Because I just can't trust it to give it the data, right? So limitations abound. People are doing some cool stuff with it, as we'll look at a little bit later. Um, but I think it's going to take a fair bit personally to realize its potential, certainly in our hands, Martin, because we can't get it to do even basic things that we want, which either means that we are not the brightest, which is highly plausible. Maybe we'll ask Code Interpreter's opinion on that. Um, or it's not easy to get correct answers out of it. Right, moving on. Uh, still on the OpenAI, still on chunk one here, all your news. OpenAI is looking for new sources of data for its model, striking deals with the likes of Shutterstock to access its images, videos, music, and metadata, and also the Associated Press tapping into its new archives dating back to 1985. So this is an interesting one, the ever the ongoing pursuit of information to train your models on and how to get it. I couldn't help this, the cynic in me, Martin, couldn't help but think, have they accessed this already? And they're just sweeping up behind themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, um, what's the phrase? It's easier to uh, ask for forgiveness or beg forgiveness than ask permission. Well, yeah, and you've got to wonder, especially you've got um, the likes of Sarah Silverman suing at the moment because ChatGPT is just too good at summarizing books to have not been shown the original information and stuff like that. I think we could see a lot of this. We get At some point, we're going to have our naps to, to Spotify transition, right, from the Wild Wild West, everything's fair game, everything's free, to somehow we have to at least partially compensate people who helped create the system, i.e. all the content creators. I'm glad that's not my job <laughs> to figure out how to fix that. Um, but I suspect we're going to have to get there. Right, moving on. Chat GPT is getting worse, question mark. Perhaps, perhaps not. So there was a new paper out by researchers at Stanford and Berkeley that suggested that GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 have changed a lot in their performance over a short period. The researchers evaluate ChatGPT on various tasks, such as solving math problems, answering sensitive questions, generating code, and reasoning visually. And what their data showed is that ChatGPT had become much worse at some tasks. So things like identifying prime numbers, um, also coding. But um, that GPT 3.5, bizarrely, had got better at some tasks. Now, other researchers have massively questioned the approach that, the, um, that this paper took. And so the results might have to uh, be taken with quite a large dose of salt. There's also some suggestions that the more you use GPT-4 and you start to realize where it doesn't work very well, the more that becomes obvious to you. And it's your perception of GPT-4 that's changing, not GPT-4 itself. That being said, if you're a user of ChatGPT and you feel, have felt recently like its performance might have been waning, there may be at least some data to suggest that's true. Thoughts on this, Martin? 
I suspect it's more a case of familiarity. I saw the feedback um, from other researchers questioning the approach. Um, the Twitter threads that I read seem to make some some good points, although unfortunately for listeners, I can't remember those points. Um, but yeah, I think it's familiarity. I think you just, it, much like knowing the, the limitations we talked about earlier on, knowing the limitations of a system, so therefore you don't try to get it to do something or you don't publish content that's hallucinated or something, you also recognize the strengths more quickly. And, and when you've gone from 3.5 to 4, when they first announced 4, and we all started playing with GPT-4, you immediately went, oh my God, this is a step change. But then once you've ran a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand prompts through it, you start going, hmm, it's not, not all that, is it? Just say some silly things. Um, yeah, so I think it's more about familiarity. I think that's definitely part of it. It's interesting, and I'd have to dive deeper into the paper to see how robust those assessments were that showed that it was good at one thing before and not so good now. I really question the the prime number thing, the the ninety seven point six percent accuracy reduced to two point five percent. Like I, I don't know. Maybe they have significantly changed the weights and biases in the model such that they've just absolutely kneecapped it at maths. Uh, but it's, it would seem that that's too that's too dramatic, isn't it? Surely. I mean, you would guess so. I think for me, it's more about how robust was the assessment method, unless mm. they knew for a fact that in three months' time they were going to run the same analysis, which would be a smart experiment. Um, how did the conditions change? I don't know. But ultimately, we're talking about learning what these tools are good at and not good at. And if they and if they can change quite a lot, that's going to make that harder. Um, because you're going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to learn for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's... Uh, but yet, there are certainly, we're talking a lot about how the models need to improve. And if you want the models to improve, then by definition, they're going to have to change. They're probably going to get better at some things and worse than others. How do you do that in an environment where people are trying to learn to use the tool, but it's not static? Gmail, to all intents and purposes, is a static tool. It doesn't change how it sends emails and I have to figure out a new button to press next week. And this is important for the adoption. You've talk, you talk a lot about UX and I think you're bang on mine. It's important for the adoption of tools that you know how to get the things out of them that you need and what you can rely on them for. And I think if it ends up being too dynamic, that could be a, that could be a challenge. I appreciate pressing a button in Gmail and pressing a button in ChatGPT from a UX perspective are basically the same thing. But I mean, the full user experience, not just the visual user experience. So, right, we better keep moving. So, still loads to go. Mine. <laughs> right, ChatGPT is increasing message limits for those of you that are interested in this. I personally am currently at 50 messages per three hours. Others have reported it being at 100. For in all cases, it looks like this is an improvement over the 25 message cap per three hours, which I know a lot of people were hitting and it is quite annoying. Um, so, that's great. Some more news especially if you're uh, not in Europe or the UK, is that ChatGPT and OpenAI have introduced custom instructions. So this is really quite cool. Basically, this is like introducing custom prompt injections for every chat that you have because you provide uh, in your settings some information about you, how you would like ChatGPT to respond, and any sort of delimit delimitations or 
context for basically all responses you'll ever need. We've talked previously about getting it to imitate your email style. One would assume if you include a bit of information about your writing style as part of your custom instructions, that would make that all work a little bit better. Now, as I mentioned, you can't access this in the UK and EU at the moment, although you can with a VPN, so you can have a play. Um, so you can't test it if you're in uh, where we are right now, not easily anyway. But initial users are praising its ability to generate better outputs without having to constantly enter a ton of the same prompt info, which is nice. There's also been some incredible creative uses of this tool. So a person called Nick Dobos on Twitter was suggesting you can use it to build full agents, a bit like AutoGPT or BabyGPT. And in essence, you use Code Interpreter, you get it to create a list of tasks that it then saves to a file, and then you ask it to pull the tasks from that file one by one to, to take you through a process, which was quite interesting. And Nick also found a way of, in effect, having it summarize a bit like a choose your own adventure, but for your own logical analysis, the options that you might want to add and with hotkeys. So if you want this, press one. If you want this, press two. If you want this, press three. So you could actually cycle through it quite quickly without actually even having to type, which then ended up being a really good example of how you can use this custom instructions to build that system and then code interpreter to do some cool stuff that's got nothing to do in essence with data. So custom instructions looks like it could be powerful. Hopefully they'll roll out wider use soon. What are your thoughts on custom instructions, Martin? I, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on with it. I uh, forgot that it wasn't available in the UK because I did have access to it briefly and I must have had my VPN on or something. Um, and then I went onto it this morning and I've just posted on threads. Where has it gone? Um, so yeah, I'm glad you've reminded me that that's why I can't see it. But it's a, it's a cool feature and I've seen a few users giving some use cases that I'm absolutely going to use. For example, um, just Sam Altman himself posted one on Twitter about how he's using it, which is to basically say, I know you're a large language model. You do not need to tell me every time. Just give me the answer. And yeah, little things like that. The amount of times I have to, you know, do this really basic jailbreak where I'm saying, I know you're an AI, I'm a human, and yes, I will seek professional advice and blah, 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 but just role play with me. You know, if I can get rid of all of that, then great, I've saved some time. So my favorite thing about that is it's, um, it's quite similar to what Nick does in the example I just mentioned. The top of his injection is no chat, just do. <laughs> <laughs> Like no chat semicolon just do that is a that feels like um if you want to be a, a the open AI competitor um in in the style of Nike uh, <laughs> Nike I should say that's uh, that's probably how you have to frame uh, frame your strap line um right let's talk about Claw two because the ridiculous generative AI text generation news doesn't stop so Anthropic who we've talked about the on the podcast a fair amount have released the next version of their Claude model, and it is a significant leap forward. So it's nearly as good as ChatGPT4 on a variety of standard benchmark tests. It has a 100K context window. We've talked about this before. So basically about 75,000 words. So it can handle a lot more input than ChatGPT, which makes it brilliant for summarizing large amounts of info. They've also changed how the... How the um, UX works. 
So it's much more chat-like and easier to use. And when you want to provide it with even copied text, it doesn't fill up your prompt. It just gets added as a as a attachment. So you can upload PDFs, Word docs, copy paste large chunks of text, and they'll basically be added as a text attachment. And it just makes it really easy to summarize and work with large documents. And because it's much better at its understanding than when you're working with uh, ChatGPT and also when you're working with 3.5, but also when you're working with Claude One, you can actually trust the outputs much better and you get much more high quality outputs from it. It's because it's a new model, it's knowledge cutoff is early 2023 versus 2021 for ChatGPT. So it also knows a bit more about the world and it's just well worth a play with if you if you've been on the fence about having a play with with claude now is the time because it's getting up towards gpt4 capabilities in some areas and it's free and it's free yeah you don't have to pay for all of these additional plugins the up-to-date knowledge piece is so welcome uh, i was playing around with it um <clears throat> earlier this week and it's just nice to be able to ask it questions about, you know, the, the latest research in certain areas. And it, it, it knows, it doesn't say I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, that's actually one of the big selling points. It's been integrated already into Jasper, the AI copywriting tool. They've actually cited the up-to-date knowledge training as one of the key reasons that they've integrated it into the, the models that they now use. Yeah, it's exciting. I think it's definitely worth going and, and having a play with that if you haven't so far. Although, of course, when a product is free, who's the product, Martin? You. That's right. We're all the product. So the standard caveats come. Don't paste in any information that you wouldn't be comfortable going out into the world. I, I read somewhere, I'm not sure I entirely agree with this, but don't put anything into a free-to-use model or even ChatGPT paid model that you wouldn't be willing to anonymously post on Reddit. That's the bar that I heard for what you should and shouldn't put into these models. That seems like a pretty high bar to me. Um, but I think especially if you are on the risk averse side or you're handling information that would be considered commercially sensitive, it's probably a good bar to set. Right. More language model news. Meta has released a commercial version of its open source language model, Llama 2, so that businesses can build products on top of it. It's available in three model sizes, ranging from 7 billion to 70 billion parameters. So that is now basically Meta taking what it originally released as open source, but without any commercial use whatsoever, and making it available for companies to use. The first company I saw jump on this was Perplexity AI, which was a tool of the week that you introduced us to a few months ago or a few weeks ago, mine. Um, and it's blazing fast. Isn't it? Wow. It's like real time almost. And the quality of the outputs in some of my initial blogging tests, I got a blogging test that I run all new models through to see how nuanced the outline is and how well crafted the copy is. It was closer to GPT-4 than I thought it was going to be, which is pretty awesome in this particular use case. Um, there is a note that Meta have put some restrictions on the commercial use of this tool for, I think it's if you've got more than 700 million users. Is that sound about right, Ryan? Yeah, so they basically 
stop the likes of Google just being able to use it or, or anyone like that. And there's also some weird caveat about, I'm not sure of the exact phrasing, but it's like, if you're planning to use this to solve world hunger, or if you know if you're using the model for some like major world uh, changing event, like there's some restrictions on it. So I know people from the open source community, like leaders within that field have, have basically said, yeah, they've said it's open source, but it it isn't open, open source. It's But it's a step in the right direction, certainly much more so than uh, open AI, ironically. Yeah. Closed AI, as we're going to start calling them on the podcast. But yeah, I agree. I, I read somewhere that the 700 million users seems quite like an interesting cutoff that would be very specific, that would allow you to very easily say, okay, it's not going to be Google, it's not going to be Amazon, right? And all these other platforms that are clearly competitors to Meta. I also heard someone say, yeah, maybe it was also driven by the size of company they thought they could easily buy. <laughs> right? It's yeah. like, mm, up to about 700 million users, we think we could buy them if if we had to, um, as they grew. Um, but outside of that would be too difficult. So I thought that was quite interesting. I um, had one quick play with it. And um, it was on the 7 billion parameter model. I didn't realize that was the one I'd selected, but it was the first test I did on perplexity. And I asked it to just describe the story of Goldilocks. And it gave me the most weird response. And it was basically saying that... Um, there were troubling themes to do with Goldilocks and it couldn't describe Goldilocks because of all of these troubling themes. And really we should all move on from the story of Goldilocks because of its, uh, because of its troubling themes. And I thought, how has that come across? Clearly there, there, there's some guardrails that have been put around this. I didn't, you know, the prompt was literally like describe the story of Goldilocks um, and I could never get it to recreate it, but it gave me like multi-paragraph, response telling me why Goldilocks was was bad and the themes in it were not suitable for basically modern society. It was as if I'd asked it to write a poem praising Adolf Hitler. Right. So we've done OpenAI. We've done a bit of meta news. Let's talk Google for a bit. There's quite a bit of Google news over the last couple of weeks as well. So I think first and foremost, there's been a ton of updates to Bard. So you can now upload images as part of your prompt via an integration with Google Lens. I saw some people trying to do some interesting stuff with this one, Martin, just this image one, like uploading receipts and things to see if it could easily pull information out to help expensing, but it was making stuff up, so it couldn't really be trusted. I tried it when I was in France, and there was a uh, there was an advert of a chicken and I was, there was a chicken like poking his head in the side, like looking at the user and another chicken next to it with an egg coming out of it. And it said something in French about chat GPT. And I, I had zero context for what this advert was. I was just like, this is, this makes no sense to me. So I, um, I took a photo of it and asked it to ask Bard to, to tell me what, why it was funny and what, what was going on. And while it did a good job of under, it read the text in the image and translated that accurately, but it didn't quite get what was going on in the image so it thought the chicken was wearing sunglasses which it wasn't and then it went on on this like big explanation about why it was funny because it was kind of juxtaposing a, a chicken laying an egg with a chicken wearing sunglasses and ha 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 isn't that funny and I just thought well I mean fair play to it, it did a good job kind of getting an understanding of what was on the image with the text uh, but it yeah 
after that, it all sort of fell down. Yeah, it's interesting that there have been tools for a decade or more that could pull in text information out of printed materials. Um, it wouldn't appear to be that hard necessarily to 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 add that capability, but I guess the way these models are trained is very different, and so it's not an apple and pears but comparison. It makes you wonder what's going on in the back end, because as you say, like it's screen reading. So we've had OCR for, for text and images for, for a long time. So when you upload an image, does it run that process first? Like are there, are there multiple things that it does in the processing? Mm. Um, like does Google, does it do a Google lens job of describing the image, extracting the text separately, turning all of that into a prompt, aligning that with your written prompt, and then kind of spitting out the answer. I'd, I'd really interested to see what's going on behind the, behind the scenes. Mm. Yeah. Cause the compute power that would be required to chain all those different analyses together, especially if a bunch of them are not needed. Right. Would be a lot. Mm, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over time and comes back to this concept of lots of different AI tools that are really good at a handful of things versus one master AI tool, unless we can figure out how to get the compute costs and time down because chaining all those different analyses together is going to, it's going to add a lot there. Um, there's some other cool stuff that, that came with some of the updates to Bard. So since, well, since I started playing with Bard, you could use your microphone to record your prompt. Um, so it's probably been then around launch and not, you know, if it came out afterwards, not long afterwards. Now Bard can read the responses to you. So we're drifting much more into a Star Trek Hello Computer or Jasper style worlds of interacting with these um, large language models in a very natural you speak and then it speaks back to you type way, um, which at some point then, how does that work? Are we going to be able to dig out our Alexas and our Google Homes and actually make them work for more than just um, set a timer for me cooking these eggs and what's the weather like later on? It's the next logical step, isn't it? Um, particularly with Google Home. And I think they've already said that Bard will be integrated with, with Google Home. Um, Amazon's approach to this is going to be interesting. They are noticeable in their absence of not having a large language model, instead offering a marketplace. Are they going to partner with the likes of AI21 or are they going to launch their own language model and integrate it with the smart speaker system? whose name I'm not saying right now because I'm sat next to one of their speakers and it will respond to me uh, <laughs> when I really don't want it to. But yeah, that's that's the, the way it's going. Yeah, I, th I think it would be interesting to see how these are playing out. I'm using a tool that's better than the one that I built for myself called Audio Pen so that if I'm walking the dog, I can leave an audio note and it's auto-transcribed and summarized in one of a, of a number of styles personally i would love to get to the point where i can have a smart speaker although i guess the headset i've got on is just as good through the browser and just speak stuff i'd love to just talk to google mail and then have it draft emails for me in my style that are more than the ramblings of how i speak right but um but that, that can uh, maintain the essence that is how i want to communicate in the words i typically say the use case that i really want to see for this is within the car so android auto or apple carplay whatever it's called 
Um, that's the thing that's that's missing for me. The fact that there isn't an app so far that I can find on Android Auto where I can record a voice memo hands-free. If I want to record a voice memo in the car, I have to actually press it on my, my device, which is not ideal. Um, so I try to, to minimize the use of that. If you could just do it with Android CarPlay and just, sorry, Android Auto, and it's integrated with Bard and you can have that back and forth. Oh, that's that's a game changer, particularly if you're doing long commutes and lots of driving. Yeah. Have a, have a conversation with the car. But a productive work-based one where it can then send the email for you afterwards. You're like, read that back to me. Yeah, cool. That's bang on what I want. Send it off to Bob. Well, you can do that already with um, WhatsApp messages in Android Auto, can't you? Oh, can you? I don't have uh, Android Auto, so I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, what else can you do? There's some a, a bit of other stuff you can do. Oh, I, I just want to mention when Google talks to you, it's quite fun to play with it. Um, it's not as good as Eleven Labs. So we've talked about on the podcast before. Eleven Labs is a company that's trying to solve for creating synthetic voices that sound like human voices, both in terms of the sound of a voice, but also the natural pattern of how people speak with pauses and tone changes and volume changes. Um, Bard's ability to read things out is not quite as good as that, but it's certainly a far cry from old school style robotic text to speech readers. Um, So we're getting there in short. Um, What else can you do? You can modify the responses a little bit like you can in Bing. So you can say, I want the response to be simple or long or short, professional or casual. So you can change some of that stuff if you're having it create content for you, which I wouldn't recommend because it's nowhere near as good as Claude or ChatGPT, but you can if you want. Um, It's easier to share the responses now via link. So if you get a response and you think you want to share that with someone, you can just create a link that you can populate and say an email to send someone. And Bard is now available in Europe without VPN after addressing privacy concerns. So lots of updates on Bard. Our take home is still what we just said, which is not as good as the other tools, really. Got internet access. That's a massive boon, especially now ChatGPT doesn't, unless you use Martin's clever plugin workaround. Um, Right. Let's keep the Google News going. We've got... Google launching its AI-powered notes app called Notebook LM. So you'll remember this when Martin told us about all the news that came out of Google's, I think it was Google's developer conference, was it? Is it IO? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Um, so we knew about this, but the, informa- the important and interesting thing here is now you can access it. It's only available to select users in the US, and there is a wait list you can join. It is cited by Google themselves as an experimental product designed to use the power and promise of language models. That sounds like corporate language paired with your existing content to gain critical insights faster. Um, Basically, how does it work? It is a virtual assistant chatbot style tool that has access to your document library. It looks at the moment like you have to give it three, four, five documents to like set the scene that you want to have a conversation about those. So it might be that You've got uh, an internal memo and a, a work, you know, a document like a blog post. Uh, I don't know, and some stats and data that someone pulled out and dropped into a Google Doc for you. You can query those all in one go. And what this seems like to me is the early versions of what co-pilots are going to do once they get baked into workspace and also into uh, Office three six five. So if you can get access to that, it's worth getting on the waitlisting, having a little bit of a play. 
I'm struggling to see the use case for this that isn't quickly usurped by those co-pilots, Martin, now that I know how it's going to work. Martin agrees. He nods <laughs> excitedly. <Yes. laughs> he says, move on to the next story about Genesis. Can do. The band. Oh, I could talk for hours about the band. But uh, it isn't the band on this occasion. It's Google testing an AI tool called Genesis that can write news articles. Google's been about town pitching this to publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. They state very clearly that the AI enabled tools are not meant to replace journalists, but rather act as co-pilots. And that Google is only in the early stages of exploring the tool, which it sees as being an assistant that helps with things like headlines and changing copyright uh, writing styles. Um, as reported by The Guardian, there's a Guardian article on this, two executives at the New York Times who saw the pitch said it seemed to take for granted the effort that went into producing accurate and artful news stories. And I think our take on this, Martin, is that major parts of journalism are still well out of reach for current AIs, not to mention the fact checking that we've been talking a lot about today and over the last couple of months. So interesting play by Google, like going into senior leadership Try and tell me that that is not an argument to cut <laughs> yeah. right in stuff. Ballsy, isn't it? Absolutely. And particularly in the landscape where we're seeing the, the Hollywood actors strikes and the writers strikes, all of which is concerned with how AI is going to be used within creative production workflows, you know, <clears throat> actors being able to record a thing and then the AI edits what they say. They don't have to be, coming back in for reshoots, meaning they don't get paid as much and all of these kinds of things. If Google is pitching, hey, your sub-editors, you can get rid of them. Um, that's a, a strong move. It sounds like the top brass are not overly convinced, though. Not publicly. <laughs> they're <laughs> like, maybe they're like, Google, this sounds amazing. I am going to have to come out in the press and say, say it sounds like Tosh and that it will never work and that we'd never do it. Um, but yeah, do tell me more. Now, yes, yeah, it's, it's difficult to say. On the um, on the writers and the Hollywood strike, did you? I don't know how much credence there is in this story, but there it's been floated that there that some of the major studios are trying to get supporting actors, so background actors, to come in for a day's worth of work and get scanned as an, basically extras, right? And then use them across multiple productions across that um, across their suite of whatever they're producing. Um, but only have to pay the people once because they get the scan of them and then away they go. Oh, well, you can totally buy that, can't you? Um, if you've, I've, I was working with a, a company that does virtual production, um, a, an interesting area of TV and movie production where you have large LED screens. So you'll have a real scene with real actors in the foreground, but all in the background is just an LED projection. And what you can do with that is if you use a slightly out of focus um, background scene, you can just have, a, you know, you could have a crowd scene or, you know, like exactly like you say, background actors. If they're slightly out of focus, you just do it all using Unreal Engine. Right? And it looks good enough when it goes onto the big screen, to be real. So already that's not AI generated. We're already seeing the need for real people be taken out of, of production at some extent. So makes perfect sense to me that they would they would try to do that as well. Agreed. I think it's a bit of a tangent, but 
it really, really puts a number of creative professionals, when you look at it in this instance, between a rock and a hard place. Because if synthetic, you talk about blurring those synthetic people created an Unreal Engine, which is a, a gaming engine, traditionally a gaming engine, getting powerful enough to potentially be used in movies. Um, but if you can create synthetic people, it's like, well, come in and get a day's worth of work and let me scan you. Or don't, and I'll just have synthetic <laughs> people in the background. Crumbs. That is a industry conundrum that is probably going to be an interesting trendsetter for how other areas of the economy have to deal with the be augmented or be replaced. And you know, it's going to be a bunch of areas of the economy, probably more, many more areas of the economy where you can't do this. But in those areas where you can, it doesn't give the people much bargaining power does it no we should all just have careers as refuge collectors and ref, ref, um, <clears throat> refuse collectors even uh you know become a bin man can't ai that way well unless optimus and these other robots improve in performance significantly over the next five or so years but yeah i definitely think if i was like 18 now i think i'd be like right electrician plumbing roofing the hard trade, to automate trade craft yeah. yeah um anyway we digress let's talk hubspot for a bit um hubspot's chat spot say that after you've had a, a few drinks at a wedding martin now um learns your writing style for blogs and emails so uh, the launch email on this claimed that you could train your ChatSpot account on up to 5,000 words of text from your blog or previous email campaigns, and it will use this to get closer to your brand style when creating new blog or email content. However, when you played with this, Martin, you didn't quite get that as your uh, experience, did you? Not even close. So the email where they launched it said 5,000 words, um, and it's 5,000 characters. And that is a dramatic difference uh, in terms of training input. So it gives you around 700 to 1200 words uh, that you can input. So that's basically one blog post, realistically, yeah. that, you, that you can train it on. So I was a bit surprised when I came to actually use it. It's 5,000 characters for email as well. And that's quite a few emails. So you can actually put in several examples. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, the blog version needs a bit of a needs a bit more work. Yeah, actually, when you when you correct the error, it's much more in the context windows of ChatGPT and the APIs underpinning that. Right, five thousand characters is probably I don't know eight thousand tokens, sixteen thousand tokens sounds a bit more realistic, perhaps. But won't be that long before we can, maybe, but but not this tool yet. I thought what it was what it does when it analyzes it was quite interesting. It gives you a, a, a paragraph giving you quite a detailed description of the tone of voice, which I'm assuming what it then does in the back end is injects that into a prompt when you then ask it to write a blog. I think you're absolutely right. I use a Chrome plugin called Prompt Manager. And in one of the newsletters I'm subscribed to, I saw an example where you paste a load of text that you've written into ChatGPT with the prompt that you want it to create you. What does it call it? Some sort of um, like voice paragraph or something, some, something like that, 
where it basically boils down the one 2000 words that you give it to a statement designed to mimic your style, but in a reductionist sense that you can then use every time you want to write something. So yeah, that would be similar to that, but it's doing it all in the back end. So you don't have to worry about including that. Of course, if you've got access to the new custom tool from, uh, God, there's been so much that we've covered today. What's it called? Custom, custom instructions. instructions. Yeah. If you, uh, you could do that in your custom instructions as well now, couldn't you? So that would be quite a good use case. Um, right. Let's talk Microsoft's OpenAI features um, coming into Office AI. It's been reported that Microsoft are going to charge $30 per user for you to use AI in Office 365 products. I've heard a bit of grumbling about this. Oh, go on, Mike. Because it's $30 per user per month, right? Yes. Which is quite, that is more than I was expecting it to be, given that, you know, a standard, let's take home office user is about, what, 70, 80 quid a year. Um, The enterprise licenses are not much more than that, are they, per person per year? Probably I don't like know. 10, I think 15. we pay about $10 per user at Biostrata. Yeah, yeah. So going up from 10 to 40, you know, that's a substantial shift. Well, because it's an interesting one. And I saw a lot of grumbles online. Like the main consensus here was like, that's a bit steep. Mm. Um, there are a bunch of tools floating around the internet right now that are $20 per user, $30 per user, $50 per user, and they're not going to do all the things that Copilot's going to do. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is just trying to think about how much time this might save someone. Because I do appreciate that it seems like a lot. And if you're a large enterprise and you've suddenly got to pay $30 per user per month for all your all your folks, that's going to cost you a lot. And I saw Microsoft's um, share price responded in kind because people were projecting out how much extra revenue this could drive per year for Microsoft. But if it saves an employee five to 10 hours a month, and your average employee is probably doing 120 to 140 valuable hours per month if they're working like a normal nine to five job, trying to factor in holidays and stuff like that. So that would be, you know, less than what 10% of their time being saved right um if you're paying your employees $10 an hour you only need to save $3 uh, sorry 3 hours a month to break even if you're saving 10 hours a month then you're then you're getting a return on investment so ultimately i think the, if you look at it it'll end up potentially being quite cheap compared to the value it unlocks. And I'm absolutely certain this is where Microsoft are thinking and starting to solve some of the conundrum that no one else has looked to solve for yet, which is how do we monetize the productivity gains offered by AI? And I think this is the first attempt at that. But, and there's a big but, in order for this to work and to realize that investment that we just talked about, that return on investment, companies are going to need to train their staff, right? to ensure that they and the organization can get the full benefits of using the systems. And they're going to have to find ways to encourage adoption because I think adoption is going to be mixed, especially if we look at the early adopters of ChatGPT potentially using it less. 
now in June than they were before, and it was actually starting to go down. So $30 per month per user seems expensive. I think it's actually cheap, but only if you train your team on how to maximize the benefits of the tool and you can overcome the inertia of actually getting them to use it and you and change the ways they work today. Now, it's currently being tested by a select group of beta test companies and the wider rollout date is still not announced. This is a pain in the bottom for a lot of organizations, as far as I'm concerned, who are probably sat on the fence around, should I give people PageAct GPT account? Should I buy Jasper or Writer or any of these other tools? Which tools can I trust with my data or not? I suspect a lot of us are just going, hurry up and sort this out for us, will you, Microsoft, so that we can just work in an ecosystem that we know well, that's passed all our security checks, that we trust you with our data already, so crumbs, we may as well trust you with this as well so we can just roll this out to our employees because i think a lot of businesses are in that gray at the moment where they need an enterprise level provider to step up and meet their checklist of requirements and i just don't think there is one yet well no absolutely there isn't and we're not heard anything from uh, from google in this domain either so we we wait patiently what have we got notebook right which is definitely um a very Diet Coke version of this. I do know that a bunch of people have got um, access to the the Google Workspace equivalent, which basically it's a little bit like the one in HubSpot. It gives you a little button that you can click when you select text and you can rewrite it, expand it and those types of things. But if it's based on Google's large language models, which are arguably the worst so far, I'm not that excited for it. Whereas Microsoft is powered by GPT-4. Um, we should also say when you charge $30 a month and everybody starts bashing these, we, we're going to have to get some, we're going to have to like go off world to find the materials we need to create all the GPUs. Or we're going to have to like trick some asteroids into circulating the earth and turn them into like cloud. I mean, that was, that was like, that's not cloud, that's stratosphere <laughs> and above, right? Um, that's a that's a select a, a different issue when everybody's using these tools all the time. The amount of compute power and energy could get kind of insane. But yeah, hurry up, Microsoft. I think there's a bunch of us that just need you to make our product selection easy here and just give it to us. Um, right. Last bit about large language models and assistance. Inflection AI, who we've talked about before, the developers of Pi, have developed an $880 million AI supercomputer even when GPUs are currently scarce, they do have a major investor and that major investor is NVIDIA. So that might explain how they got hold of those. Um, they've raised $1.5 billion so far and have a $4 billion valuation. So we talked about them on the last podcast and how the tool, just all it wants to do is ask you questions, but definitely we all need to keep an eye on inf inflection. And I was having some fun with Pi. I just tripled my productivity with Pi Mine because I realized that if you use Pi in WhatsApp, you can leave Pi a voice note. It auto transcribes it and then writes back to you in text. So I now wander around my house, leaving my thoughts as rambling voice notes that then Pi has to untangle and then come back with a response. And I've found that excellent tool for brainstorming. It's kind of cool. If you haven't played with Pi yet, get it on the WhatsApps. It's free. It's not free. You're the product, but it's free to use. You don't have to pay. And it's fun to play with. 
I'm into that. That is a use case I'm going to go away and do immediately after this uh, recording. Do you know what the, the best thing is? I had no idea it would work. I left a voice note. I went, Pi, I don't suppose you can understand this. Back, cat came, uh, back came the text a couple of minutes later, a couple of seconds later going, yeah, 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 no worries, pal. Um, <laughs> what do you want to talk about? Again, because all it does is ask questions. Don't leave me. It said, don't leave me. If you don't speak to me, I don't have any value. Answer my next question. Um, but yeah, I, I actually think that voice note feature is really changes how you interact with it a lot. Makes me use it more. Definitely. Right. Everybody take a deep breath. We're going to move into image generation briefly now. So ClipDrop, which is the image creation manipulation tool from Stability AI, which we love on the podcast because it's very cheap, like five pounds per user per month and got a load of tools in it. They've got a new tool. It's called Stable Doodle. And it's really kind of interesting. You create a sketch of something and then it's used as part of the prompt to drive image generation. I've only done a few tests with it, but it does give you a hell of a lot more control over the image that you get which, of course, when you're trying to learn the art of prompting mid-journey to get beautiful images, but have some limited control over what it looks like, this is actually a very interesting feature. You managed to have a play with this yet, Ryan? I have not. All right, well, <laughs> get on that. I think you'll enjoy it. There's the problem with holidays. Yeah, there's been... Uh, it, I was on seeing the... all these updates and just trying to carve away a few minutes from the toddler just to, to play with something was was proving very difficult. I have been using Midjourney for everything though. Just as a, um, I've been using Midjourney for all my slide decks that I've been putting together recently, just because I can get some really good images. And I've got a prompt writer saved in ChatGPT, so I've got a conversation where I've given it all of the variables and given it loads of example Midjourney prompts, and then ChatGPT. I just give it a concept like. Um, Google eating your lunch was one that I gave it. And it give, gave me this brilliant prompt that I put into Midjourney. And Midjourney gave me this fantastic illustration that absolutely nailed it. I need you to share that workflow with me after this call. And maybe if the listeners are nice to us and they give us some nice feedback online on the Twitters and the LinkedIn's, maybe we'll share it with them as well. Um, Speaking of Midjourney, we talked a little bit about the zoom out feature of Midjourney, which is pretty cool on a previous episode. Now you can pan, which makes sense. It's kind of the same engine as zooming out, really, creating contextually relevant additional image sections around an existing image. Now you can pan, so you can go left, you can go right, you can go up and down, and you can pan multiple times on the same image. And if you've got remix mode turned on, you can even change the prompt as you extend the image. So as you're extending it, you can give it some guidance on what that extension should, should include. There are some limitations. The resolution decreases when zooming out. Um, so that is an issue when you're using some of these tools. Um, there is also an inability to pan both horizontally and vertically at the same time. You can go left or you can go up. You can't go both. Um, and it's been I think a lot of people are experiencing the possible for repetition when panning, which makes sense. Um, but of course, it's going to create an image that maybe isn't as usable as you were hoping for. There's more image generation news. So Meta has a new image generation model called Chameleon that creates images from text and can create um, text from images, so kind of captioning. The model is super efficient and requires five times less compute power and a smaller training data set than previous models. I think one of the most interesting things about it is it can understand instructions to edit existing images. So you can 
edit or remix images and give specific instructions based on objects with specific coordinates. So you can ask uh, the system to place objects in specific locations in an image, and you can edit photos with very specific prompts like change the color. Now, nobody's got access to this as far as I know. I certainly don't. So how well it is geared up to do this type of work isn't clear. But one of the interesting things about it is we've talked on the podcast about some of the limitations of existing tools that basically you can create great images, but then you've got to push them into Photoshop if you want to do anything with them. Um, this will bring an extension of capabilities eventually, one assumes, that you can edit images through natural language prompts. Instead, Meta has not announced whether or not it will plan to release Chameleon. It's certainly not released yet but we're starting to see ever more innovation in the generative image space as well as the generative tech space. You, you can well imagine that being integrated into their advertising suite, can't you? Just when advertisers are, you know, you might search for a stock image, it will pull in a stock image and then you can just ask it to change it in a certain way, changing the color of someone's top or changing the scene to a, a wintry scene or something like that. Uh, if that can be fully integrated into the the advertising workflow, I think marketers have got an interesting new tool to play with there. That's definitely where I would expect Meta to go. I completely agree. Right. We've been speaking for quite a long time now, Mark, and I think we'll give the listeners a little break. Um, and what we'll do, there's still some more news to go. Because we've not been around for a couple of weeks, we'll hold on to a little bit of this news and we'll summarize it in Friday's podcast, which will be back doing our weekly podcast again from here on out. Obviously, Martin's going to be in the US doing some shiny, exciting stuff. So we might have to do a little bit of jiggery pokery on our schedules, but we'll be back weekly from here um, sharing more amazing marketing AI news with you. Sounds great. It's been a pleasure to be back. I've enjoyed chatting with you. I, I love the fact there was so much news we couldn't squeeze it into one podcast and we'll have to somehow catch up in the next one. Yeah, and I was just looking at how much there is left to go. I think that's going to run long as well. Listeners, thank you for sticking with us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Everybody, enjoy your weeks. Thanks for your time today and look forward to the next episode of Artificially Intelligent Marketing. Bye, Martin. Bye. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.